the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. You were sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cut deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Monday, a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you've tuned in to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, whatever they might be, whatever you're going through. I'll do the best that I can to find what Jesus would say to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR at 630-5757. You can email your question to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button on the app, and you will be connected directly to our studio. hope you had a great day at church yesterday. You know, um, I've been sort of taking a poll. I think um, church attendance was down a little bit everywhere yesterday following the tragedy um, in Sutherland Springs. Uh, and I hope that's certainly not something that people are going to worry about. Uh, it's always a little bit awkward when people let fear keep them from doing the very thing that God created them to do, and that's to gather with the brothers and sisters in the Lord, to worship Jesus, to learn more about who he is and what his character is all about and how much he loves you. Um, this is one of those times when we got to say, you know what, we're not going to be held hostage by fear. So I hope all went well with you and your church yesterday. We had actually some people get saved yesterday, which is a great thing. And uh, I pray that happened at your church as well. One more time, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. We've got some good ones while we're waiting for your phone calls. Uh, Pastor Ron, do you think it's okay to let your grown children live at home instead of making it on their own? The answer is no, a thousand times no. I think as parents, sometimes we think our job is to make our children's lives easier, and that's not the purpose at all. Our purpose is to prepare them to go out into a world. Now, obviously, as Christians, from our perspective, to prepare them to love Jesus, to serve Jesus, but to do so in a world that that basically wants to destroy them. Our job as parents is to prepare them, not to coddle them, not to make life easy. You know, um, Paul and I, uh, we've been married for a long, long time, and and uh, before I was saved, um, I, I would remember my childhood, and I wanted my kids to have things I didn't have, and I wanted them to have it easier. I wanted them to be able to uh, do things that... that I just couldn't do. And so I spoiled them. Now, we had a lot of money. Uh, I was a very successful businessman. And so I made sure that everything they wanted, they needed. I, I, I didn't ask them to work. Uh, we didn't give them an allowance. Uh, we didn't require them to do chores. And Paul would always tell me that was wrong. 
And I would just say, but I just don't want it in their childhood to be like mine. I want them to have time to be kids. And it sounded emotionally so satisfying. But here's the problem with that. Paula was right, and I was wrong. And I didn't get saved until my children were 18 and 16. And I really didn't have time to model for them what a godly man was all about. I have two boys, and I didn't have an opportunity to show them what a godly man was all about, and both of the kids struggled. Uh, they're doing great now, and I'm proud of them, but they struggled. Our job as parents is to teach our kids to make their way in this world. And we can't do that if we're making it easy for them. You know, this phase that we seem to be going through in the world that we live in, where kids stay at home for a long, long time, I, I just don't understand it. We had lunch with some people yesterday, some dear people, one of my elders and his wife and one of his, uh, one of their kids, uh, a son, their other kids were, were, one was on our senior trip and, and the other was away at college. Another one is in the Marines. And we <laughs> we were had this discussion and, and uh, the young boy said, um, I want to live at home forever. And both the parents at the same time said, that's not going to happen. You can live close, but you got to go. And the idea is we want them to learn responsibility. We want them to learn to deal with money. We want them to learn to deal with the world the way it really is. And while it's our desire, and I understand it, to make things easy for them, the reality is that we're making things really, really hard for them. And so what I don't want, um, I don't want to be misunderstood. I love my kids, and I would love my kids to live next door to me for their whole lives. <laughs> but the truth is, They've got to go on their own. They've got to find the Lord for themselves. One other thing for Christian parents. As a pastor, all too often, I've got kids, grown kids, living at home, and they play video games all day, or they go out and drink, or they bring booze home and drink. They go out to clubs. They do all the things that unsaved kids do. And parents are allowing that to happen by subsidizing their lives, not charging them rent. So it's really, really important that we understand we have to prepare kids, and that doesn't happen when we make things easy for them. So I hope that answers your question, Anonymous. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585, let's go to Carrie holding on line one. Carrie, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, sir. Hi, Pastor Ron. Uh, I had a question for you regarding the mark of the beast. Um, okay. I was you know, is it referring to something physical on your hand, forehead, or is it something spiritual? Um, I've heard a lot of, uh, I've kind of heard both sides. I wanted to know. If Did we lose you, Karen? Um, the Roman Catholic Church is a part of that. Um, yeah. And that's really... Carrie, oh, you're you're fading out. Your your phone call's fading out. I got the gist of the question, so I hope I get it. If if I miss a part of of it that's important to you, the the Roman Catholic Church is not the mark of the beast, to be sure. Uh, we've got to understand that the mark of the beast, um, the the Book of Revelation says it calls for uh, for wisdom. The mark of the beast six six six. We have no idea what that is. It's been uh, there's been speculation about the mark of the beast forever and ever. But whatever the mark is in the great tribulation, people are going to take the mark of the beast with full knowledge of what they're doing. They're going to do so willingly and they're going to do so eagerly. They will have uh, done so knowing they're rejecting God, knowing they're sealing their fate for eternity. But they're going to do it because that's what it's going to take to survive in the Great Tribulation. You won't be able to buy or sell without that mark. Now, the mark, I think, that that's going to be used, we're told, it's either in the back of the hand, a chip of some sort, or in the forehead. Um, we already have, of course, the technology to do that. But um, the, the mark of the beast is not the Catholic Church. Uh, the mark of the beast is not something that we can stumble onto accidentally and we find ourselves doomed for eternity. It is a deliberate, willful choice that we're going to make in the last days. Now, here's the problem, Carrie. We have a lot of people here who um, 
are making decisions that are motivated by the beast and we do so in a world that's in complete opposition against God and we don't know the danger we're in you know I've told my church often that every time you say no to Jesus it's easier to say no the next time and our hearts get harder and harder and harder and at some point we pass that point where we've literally taken the mark of the beast without knowing it's not a physical mark like it will be in the last days or in the great tribulation but we've said no to God so often that our hearts turn hard you remember in the book of Romans and also obviously in the book of Exodus uh, we, we find that, that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God seven times and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart and literally what God did was turn Pharaoh over to his own heart. Pharaoh didn't know at that time that's what happened. He didn't know he'd cross the line. Well, in the same way we don't know when we cross the line. So uh, don't worry about the mark of the beast. It's not the church. There's certainly false churches, and the Catholic Church is a false church. Now, I want to be clear, Carrie, that that doesn't mean there aren't Christians, real Christians, in the Catholic Church. I am confident there are. But it's harder to be because of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, and people don't question them. And their hearts get hard just this past a uh, week when Paul and I were coming home from um, the, the, our pastor's conference in Southern California, um, we were sitting on the airplane. Paula was seated next to a lady, a really nice lady. She was uh, a Roman Catholic, a uh, very committed remote Roman Catholic. Uh, this is what she believed. This is what she's been taught. And any condition to the contrary is upsetting to her. Paula asked at one point, so does your church teach that you have to be born again? And her response was, and I'm just listening to this conversation going on, her response was, well, not like you all teach. And by that she means the Christian church. And Paul tried to engage her in conversation. She said, so you, you believe that's right? And she says, well, of course I believe it's right because I've been a Catholic my whole life. I wouldn't go if I didn't believe it was right. But see, the thing is, what matters is truth, not what somebody teaches. And when we um, don't check things out with the Bible, that's when we fall into trouble. And we can find ourselves comforted by religion, religion that doesn't save, and we will have taken the mark of the beast in a figurative sense without even knowing it, and our hearts just get so hard. So, Carrie, again, it's not the Roman Catholic Church, the mark of the beast, um, uh, whatever 666 represents, um, when people take it in the Great Tribulation, they will do so with full knowledge, having rejected God of their own free will. So, Carrie, I hope that helps. If you didn't get the answer, please feel free to call back, uh, maybe get a, in a better location so there would be uh, a better connection. Thank you. appreciate it. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app from John. He says, why do we hold to a pre-tribulation rapture of the church? John, we hold to it because that's what the Bible teaches and because only the pre-tribulation rapture of the church is consistent with the character and the nature of God. Let me explain. Uh, the Great Tribulation uh, from the Old Testament um, um, prophecies of it uh, all the way through uh, the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus is teaching in the Mount of Olives on the Olivet Discourse. Uh, the Great Tribulation, a time of terrible trouble, uh, a trouble that's never been before or, or will be since, uh, is God's judgment being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. Now, by definition, that means that we can't be judged in the Great Tribulation, those of us who haven't rejected Christ. You remember the story in Genesis where Jesus appeared to Abraham. And because Abraham was his friend, he didn't want to conceal this from him. He said, I've come to see if the uproar in Sodom and Gomorrah is as uh, we have been told uh, we're coming to judge it. And Abraham started negotiating with God. He said, well, if there were 50, if there were 40, if there were 30, and he goes all the way down. And Abraham's final argument is this one. He said, you know, surely will the righteous judge of all the earth 
Could he judge the righteous with the wicked? And Jesus, in that passage of Scripture, could have said, well, you know, I can judge the righteous and the wicked because I belong to the righteous, but he didn't. He said no. And that's when the negotiation continued. It went all the way down to five people. They couldn't find five righteous people, so judgment came. You remember the angels when they appeared to Lot, Lot, one of the righteous, so he wasn't living a very righteous life. He was righteous by faith. Lot will be in heaven. And the angel, the destroying angels, went to him, and they grabbed his wrist and snatched him away and said, Come, we cannot do anything until you leave. Why? Because God can't judge the righteous. The Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's wrath, is an angry God, angry at the condition of sin, pouring out judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. Jesus isn't angry at us. So any other timing of the rapture of the church, uh, mid-trib, post-trib, none of it is it possible because it violates the nature of God. And every time we come up with a doctrine, even in this area of eschatology, John, every time we've got to make sure that doctrine is consistent with the nature of Jesus Christ. There is no possible way that we can be judged by God because Jesus already took the judgment of God, the wrath of God in our place. So before the great tribulation begins, we will be raptured out of here and that could come at any moment. I hope it comes soon. In the meantime, we occupy until he returns. So John, it's very important. That's the biblical teaching and there is no place in scripture. If you understand um, by using a solid hermeneutic of interpretation if you understand who Jesus is speaking to in the Olivet Discourse you understand he's talking about his people, the Jews during the time of Jacob's trouble Paul says in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye we'll be changed transformed, we'll be given our glorified, resurrected physical bodies and we'll be with him and we'll be like him he'll take us out of here for a period of seven years we will return with him you can read about that in Revelation chapter 19 when we return with Jesus he will destroy the world that's opposed to him and he will usher in the millennial reign of Christ on earth it's a thousand years where you and I, John, will be ruling and reigning with Jesus. So that's why we hold to a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. It is the only possible answer. Thanks very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Nacho from our email inbox. Pastor on, Jews are looking for peace in their time, expecting the coming of the Messiah. Since we as Christians know and declare that Jesus, the Messiah, has come already, how do we demonstrate his peace to a Jew in the midst of life in the world they live every day. Thank you. Uh, not sure you're referring to uh, a comment I made in our study yesterday in Romans uh, chapter 10 as we finished uh, the, the 10th chapter of Romans. Um, we don't demonstrate the kind of peace they're looking for. If you ask nearly every Jewish male, take somebody 40 years old, somebody with uh, a family, children, what is your hope in life? They won't say, my hope is that the Messiah will come. They will say, my hope is it will have peace. Now, if anybody is weary of war, if anybody's weary of being hated, if anybody's weary of terrorist bombings, it's Israel. And every generation wants to bring peace so their children won't go through what they went through. And I mentioned in the Bible study yesterday that there will be no peace in Israel ever. We're to pray for the peace of Israel as Christians, but that means we're to pray for the return of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. There will be no peace in, in Israel until Jesus returns. Now, because we know the Messiah has come already, what we can do, and Paul uses this in Romans chapter 10, he's going to do it again in Romans chapter 11. He, he says, I hope to provoke my brothers, the Jews, to jealousy. 
the work that God is doing amongst the Gentiles in his ministry, the, the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit, the Church of Jesus Christ exploding from the beginning stages. And he says, I hope to provoke Israel, Jews, to jealousy so that perhaps, he said, that they might believe that Jesus is the Christ. So there's not a lot, not sure that we can do about that. Now, I also made an application and study yesterday for us, and the application is that we can view the unbelieving people in our lives exactly the same way. We want our lives to be so right with God. We want our lives to be so filled with joy and so filled with the peace of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus, when he left his disciples, he said, um, it's good for them that he goes. They didn't believe him, but he said, when I go, my peace, I leave with you. And whenever I'm teaching that passage in John, I, I always insert the word personal. Jesus' personal peace has been given to us. Now, a world that's in turmoil, people that live in fear, people that are burdened by sin, when they see a Christian who is walking in the peace of the Lord, it's really attractive. And so for us, our application is we demonstrate his peace to unbelievers of all persuasions by really trusting the Lord. We don't freak out over the things that they freak out. We don't give in to fear. doesn't mean we're not afraid. It just means that instead of giving in to it, we hold on to Jesus. We rely on him and he gives us his peace. And when somebody sees, an unbeliever sees a Christian that life just oozes peace, when that happens, it's very attractive. And so I think that's the application for us, Nacho. Thank you very, very much for the question. Um, 340-9585 here is a question from our mobile app from Scott. Uh, it's a question directed personally to me. How do you organize your Bible reading? Do you have a plan to ensure you will eventually read through the entire Bible? Uh, Scott, I'm much more intentional than that. Um, I, I don't plan on eventually reading through the law. I've read through the entire Bible several times. Here's what I learned really early on, and, and I, I this isn't something I read about. It's just something that, that I discovered. When I first got saved, I was so excited about God's Word, excited about finding out what He had for me. That I, I just started devouring the Bible. And I learned that if I read 10 chapters every day, 10 chapters. Now, some books don't have 10 chapters. For instance, Ephesians has six chapters. So uh, if I just read those six chapters, and it doesn't take as long as you think, 10 chapters every day, I could read through the Bible two times a year. So it's really important. So the thing to do, Scott, is to discipline yourself just to do it. Uh, the way I would organize it, I would organize it to do a New Testament book and an Old Testament book. And for me, when I started, I'd read five chapters of the Old Testament and then five chapters in the New Testament book. I read them systematically. I didn't read them in order necessarily, but I read them systematically. By that, I mean I, I started in a book and I didn't stop till I finished that book. So for me, it was just making sure I was reading the old, getting sort of a panorama view of the scriptures, but also reading the new. And if I would read five chapters in the Old Testament, five chapters in the New Testament, I could read through the Bible twice a year. And I think that's really, really important. I organize my Bible reading. Now, I think if you've been listening to the program, Scott, and I think I recognize uh, your, your name, um, I can't read much anymore. I'm visually impaired. And so now Paula reads to me. And we don't have time to read 10 chapters a day. Our life is just too busy. But she reads to me. I've got three Bible studies going every week and Paula reads the passages of Scripture that we're teaching on. And she reads them to me over and over. For me personally, uh, I'll struggle through with my big old magnifying goggles and uh, I, I want to. I still want to read. I like turning the pages. And so when I'm reading and chewing on things, I'm just doing that as the Lord leads. Um, uh, I went to a conference and there was somebody talking about Habakkuk and the Lord wants to speak to me through Habakkuk. So I'm going to start reading uh, from uh, the prophecy of Habakkuk. And that's in addition to what Paul is doing. So it's important. Just do it. Discipline yourself. The more effort you put into it, 
the more exciting it will be, the less laborious it will be. Now, I want to be really straightforward and honest with you, Scott. Some of it is tedious reading. But every word written by God, the Holy Spirit, the hand of God pushing the pins of men. So you read it. You get to Leviticus and you're going to want to chew your tongue off. But it's important. It shows you how much God hates sin. It shows you how dirty sin is and how it defiles us spiritually. So you just soldier through it. Practicing self-control. That's what discipline is. You know, a lot of us, we go to the gym and we work out. It's not fun. At least it's not for me. But I do it because it's good for me. In the same way, we struggle through our Bible and we do it because we need to. And I promise you, Scott, that God will honor your commitment to do it. So organize your own Bible reading in a way that you're going to read it. And not eventually, but you ought to be reading through the Bible every year. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. 340-9585. We've got 30 minutes left in the Monday program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-5757. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Monday edition program. Hey, at the top of the program, I was so excited to be back with you that I forgot to mention that tonight here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies, including now junior high Bible study. Uh, we want to be able to give people the opportunity to come as a family. They go to their own different Bible studies, uh, but they get to come as a family. It's just a great night uh, to teach tonight. May Cruzado will be teaching the ladies, and I always mention the ladies specifically because that is the service that we live stream. Uh, ladies, if you can't make it here and you want to watch, um, calvarysa.com, you can watch the live stream portion. Uh, May Cruzado will be teaching tonight. Uh, her husband, Pastor Ken, teaches the men. Uh, our youth pastor, Pastor Nelly, teaches the high school age youth. And Chris Sanchez teaches our junior hires. So all of that tonight at 7 o'clock, child care is obviously provided. Here's a question from our email inbox from Michael R., Pastor Ron, good day to you, sir. May God continue to bless you and Paula. Thank you, Michael. He does. Uh, I have a trivial question about giving, not in regards to giving to the church or tithing per se, but in giving to people on the street. Now, before I read the question, I want to try to get people to start thinking about giving differently. Tithing is not a New Testament principle. Giving of our own free will with a joyful and a cheerful heart That's the New Testament principle of giving. Tithing is a tenth. And if you're giving a tenth, uh, unless that's what the Lord is telling you to do, it's not a biblical mandate at all. That was the law for Jews. We who are under grace owe God so much more. And so offer him everything. Doesn't mean you have to give everything to the church. He's going to let you keep most of your stuff. But only when you realize Everything that you have belongs to him. Only then are you really understanding what giving is. Continuing his question, he says, The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I do try to make an effort to carry cash, as I do enjoy giving to people on the side of the road when I can. Admittedly, I sometimes don't give when I have cash available. When we're at a very busy stoplight and a bunch of people are around, if you will, I feel like if a bunch of people see me give to someone, it somehow takes the value out of it as I'm bringing attention to myself and doing so. I feel like I want to do as privately and discreetly as possible. Am I taking the Bible verse out of context? What's a good rule of thumb in those situations? Respectfully, Michael R. Michael, thanks for that. You are taking the con- the Bible verse out of context. You know, when uh, Jesus was talking about that, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And we, we, we've got to understand the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was addressing Jews who were under law. 
and more specifically, he was addressing the question, uh, if you don't believe in me, how good do you have to be to get to heaven? Remember, Jews believe that simply by being Jewish, by virtue of having the law given to them, they were going to be in heaven. Jesus is saying, no, you have to believe in me. And what he does in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he, he, he raises a standard to impossible levels. How good do you have to be to, to get to heaven without believing in me? Perfect. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. And then he addresses the people in the audience in chapter 6 and 7. And in this particular case, the, the Jewish religious leaders like to let their religiosity be public. So what, what would happen is they would pray these loud, long prayers uh, in the public so everybody could see how spiritual were they were. When they were giving, they wanted to be sure everybody saw what they were giving and how spiritual they were, how generous they were. And Jesus is simply saying, no, when you give, give quietly. Now, Michael, the way this applies to us in situations where we give to the needy, is we just don't make it an effort. It doesn't matter if anybody accidentally sees us giving. It's just one of those things where we we give because God's moved on our heart to give. Now, obviously, you're a generous person. But here's the one thing I do want to caution you about, Michael. We have to be careful because a lot of times we're helping people destroy themselves. Now, anytime God, I want to make this clear, anytime God prompts us to give. The other, just uh, last week, we were going to, um, uh, to in and out after um, our Sunday services, which we do most Sundays. And there's always a place where there's some people under the, the freeway on ramps and under the bridge there where, where they're, they're asking for handout. And uh, one of the, the homeless guys was, was at the restaurant and he was asking people for donations. And I told him, I'll buy you a hamburger, buy you lunch. And we did that. But we're not helping somebody by giving them money um, when they're unwilling to help themselves. You know, people learn to panhandle. They learn to, to beg. This is not like beggars in the New Testament, uh, people that were lame and crippled. They, they begged to, because there was no other way to survive. But a lot of these people are able-bodied. They could work. I've offered... You know, the, the signs used to say, I will work for food. Um, I've offered jobs. And nobody's ever said yes. So, Michael, these are things I think that we have to pray about. God, am I helping you or am I getting in your way? I think we're doing much more f- than, than by praying for someone than by handing them 10 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever it is. Now, having said that, I think the Spirit will lead. There have been times when the Lord has very specifically led Paula and me to give. And so we've done that. But that's the exception rather than the rule. So I think these are matters that we need to pray about. Uh, Just making somebody, making it easier for them to buy uh, booze or drugs um, isn't really helping anybody. So we share Jesus. Most of the time, they're just going to shine you on, or they'll say, oh, God bless you, God bless you. But Jesus is the one that they have to go to for help, not people. And I think sometimes, even with the right intentions, I think sometimes we actually get in the way. So as you're led, give. Tell them Jesus said to do it. And then pray for them when you leave. But don't feel obligated to give just because they need help or they want help. If they're not willing to help themselves, that's really tough. So I hope that makes sense to you, Michael. Thank you for your question. I appreciate it as always. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Rich. He says, Pastor Ron, how would you encourage someone who feels called to be a pastor? What advice uh, would you give to them? Um, I would encourage them uh, by telling them, Rich, that if they feel called to be a pastor, it's the greatest gig in the world. I mean, it is by far the greatest job in the world. I've had jobs in my life that paid me tons and tons of money. None of them approached this one. None of them approached the privilege and the honor 
and being able to take care of the, the people of God by giving them, teaching them the Word of God, by getting involved in their lives. Let me give you an example, Rich. Uh, today, um, just this afternoon, I had my very first pre-marriage counseling session with a young couple. Uh, the, the, the male part of this couple, um, I've known him since he was six years old. He's now teaching in our academy. He graduated from our academy, and now he's teaching in the academy. He's done that now for four or five years. Um, um, we've been praying for his wife, whoever she was going to turn out to be for a long time. Um, and, and, and this is a young man who said he's dreamed of this moment. He came into the office, and I sat down, and, and his fiance sat down. She uh, has just been coming to church for a short time since she met uh, our young man. And he stood up, and his chest was like stuck out, and, and he kind of took a deep breath in through his nose. And she said, what are you doing? He said, are you kidding? I've dreamed of this day my whole life. I'm taking it all in. Now think about that, Rich. If I wasn't a pastor, I would never be able to share in that joy and, and privilege. So what I tell him is, go for it. He who seeks the job of an elder and overseer seeks a noble thing. The second thing I would do in terms of advice, I'd tell him he's got to fall in love with his Bible. He's got to devour his Bible. There's no room to be lazy. There's no room to take a casual approach. If you're called to be a pastor, you're a pastor right now, even though you don't have a church. And God will begin at that moment developing habits and disciplines in your life that you're going to need later. You know, I always find it interesting that in my life, uh, personally, um, God knew I was going to be visually impaired. And so when I got saved, remember, I was almost 40 years old when I got saved, just a couple of months away from being 40. Um, I got saved, and I was so curious. I devoured everything I gave my hands on. And I read so much, and I read the Bible so much, and I just couldn't get enough. Well, I was putting the Word in my heart so that now when I can't read like I used to be able to read, God can pull it out. So he's got to really devour the Bible. He also has to be the leader in his home. He has to prepare his wife to be a pastor's wife. Again, it's a great privilege and honor, but believe me, it's a different life completely. I happen to be married to, like, the world champion pastor's wife. I mean, she's the most godly woman, most godly person I know. And she is my partner in this work. I couldn't do it without her. That means she's fallen in love with the people of God that I love. And so he's got to start preparing his wife, teaching his wife. They've got to be in the Word together constantly. And then I would tell him to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. If God is leading to go to a Bible college or seminary, just make sure it's God leading, not just something that you do because, well, that's the next step. Be sensitive to the Spirit. Peter and James and John, they didn't go to a seminary. Their Bible college was three years with Jesus. You ought to be in a good Bible teaching church. And if you're in a good Bible teaching church, then grow and serve. Because unless you learn to serve, you can't pastor anybody because that's what we're to do. So being a pastor is not glamorous. Uh, it's a, a service job. But it's wonderful and joyful and rich, I'd tell him to go for it and um, time to pray constantly. Be with Jesus every day. He'll never regret saying yes to the calling of God in his life. Thank you. I hope that helps. 340-9585. Um, we've got a question just came in from our mobile app from Scott. Uh, following up on this last question, he, had, he said, uh, the way the books of Psalms and Proverbs are laid out, would you read through 10 chapters in those books as well? 
especially Proverbs. There's a lot of nuggets in that book, and it takes me some time to digest them. Uh, Scott, the Proverbs and, and um, Psalms, and, and along with Job, uh, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, are, are poetic books. So uh, I think they're specifically written to chew on them for a while. So, um, um, you know, I know I don't do this myself, but I know a lot of people who um, so love the Proverbs that they read a proverb a day. Uh, most days have 30 months or 30, or 30 days or, or um, uh, most months have 30 days or 31 days. Um, and so by reading a proverb a day, they're going to be sure that they go through um, the, the book of Proverbs um, 10 or 12 times a year. And I think that's really good. Um, I think when you're reading the Psalms, I think it's especially instructive to read through First uh, and Second Samuel, um, um, the, the 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 story of David's life, so you understand the context for each Psalm. Um, but other than that, I, I think the answer is the same. Um, for me personally, Psalms has never been a deeply inspirational book. I'm not a poet type of guy. Um, but but for me, reading the history behind each psalm, um, by that I mean understanding what David was going through when he wrote his songs. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. You need to realize that was written from the caves when he was away from the temple of God, the sanctuary that he so longed for. And, and in the middle of all of his troubles, in the middle of all of the fear of, of running away from Saul, all David really wanted was to be in the house of God. And it gives us insight into his heart. So again, I think uh, if you're going to read First and Second Samuel, uh, that would be the time to, to uh, read your five chapters there and then read the attendant Psalms as well. Uh, but that's what I would do as well. Uh, the ten chapters uh, in those books, um, you don't need to read that many of them. But that would be a great place to read the five chapters in the Old Testament sometimes. Uh, but, but those are times. I, I know people get such great comfort from Psalms. I'm a practical guy. I happen to like the Proverbs. Uh, the problem with Proverbs is you have to understand the historical and the cultural context. Um, or or it sort of gets lost on you. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think the same principle applies, Scott, in general. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Daniel. Uh, does God cause evil or approve of evil in terms of his sovereignty? Daniel, uh, God's sovereignty is, is a, a, a horribly misrepresented um, theology in our church culture because of what reformed guys, Calvinists have done to it. They've shrunk God's sovereignty into a, everything that happens is approved by God. Everything that happens is caused by God. Uh, and, and obviously that's not the case. God's sovereignty is never more powerfully demonstrated than working all things together for the good of those who called him and uh, who love him and who are called according to his purpose. In other words, God can take evil things that happen and then in his sovereignty turn those things for good, for his good and for our good. But no, God does not cause evil. And if you get this twisted view of God's sovereignty, that God is all-powerful, and, and he is, but that everything that happens is the will of God because we can't resist God's will, then you misunderstand sovereignty completely. No, God didn't cause a terrorist bombing. God didn't cause the horrendous murder in Sutherland Springs last week. But he uses it in ways that we can't begin to understand. But no, he doesn't approve evil. I had somebody tell me on this program not too long ago that that uh, it was God's will that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. And I said, how could that possibly be when God told them expressly they can eat from every tree except that one? That's pretty clear to me. But when they disobeyed, well, it was because this caller said it was because God wanted them to. 
He made them to. They, there was no way they couldn't. Now, God knew they were going to do it, of course. He knows everything. But what kind of a loving God, a just God, a holy God, would make you do something that he's forbidden you to do? You see, if we think about it in those terms, Daniel, we understand what sovereignty is really all about. So no, God doesn't cause evil. He never approves of evil. Uh, that has nothing whatsoever to do with his sovereignty. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from Adelia. She says, I am also visually impaired and I'm curious, what do you use to read scripture? I've been told uh, listening to an audio Bible isn't the best way to study since it should be just you and scripture. What tools do you use and where can I find goggles? (laughs) Adelia, I'm laughing with you, not at you to be sure. Thank you. Um, you know, uh, I think an audio Bible is fine, but uh, re- remember, even an audio Bible is an interpretation. Uh, the way it's read, the emphasis. So uh, I think that's why it's more important, uh, Adelia, that we actually read the Bible ourselves and turn the pages. Uh, so what I use personally to read Scripture, I, I my Bibles are huge, heavy Bibles, because they're jumbo giant, as big as I can find it, print. Um, but I wear, um, like, I, I don't know what to call them, maybe like jeweler's goggles. Uh, you can buy them in a lot of places. I think you can buy them at Hobby Lobby and uh, or any place else. But um, they're, they're jeweler's goggles, and I use a really high magnification. Now, it slows me down, um, but it makes the letters big enough. My problem is I have a... Uh, uh, an issue with with uh, focus. My eyes are fighting for focus, and so I, everything is so out of focus uh, that that I miss entire sentences. Uh, my poor church, when I'm reading the scriptures, and I'm using twenty point bold as big as I can get it. Uh, to the the passage of scripture I'm teaching, uh, I'll look down and I can't see anything, so I'm going by memory. But when I'm reading, uh, I can slow down. And used um, I, again, I guess they're jewelers goggles, I call them um, and and it's a pretty high magnification, and I have to hold the Bible really, really close, but as I do that, I can make out enough of the word to where I read and and Adele, it's really worth the effort. Uh, I look weird. You should see me on an airplane when I'm reading my Bible or reading anything else for that matter. Uh, people look at me like, "What is wrong with him?" Um, but you know what? It's worth it to me. It's worth it to me. So those are the goggles. I also have in my office, and I don't even know what to call that thing, but I have this, this projector screen, uh, and I can put the Bible on a on a, um, a level thing underneath it, and it shoots the, the uh, it magnifies the, the, the whatever it is I'm reading onto this pretty big screen. Um, it's called an enhanced viewer, uh, and 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 I can make things bigger. Now I can't read as well with that, even though it makes the words much bigger, because I've got to use my hand to move things around. It just slows things down a whole bunch. It's frustrating for me, Adelia, because before I started losing my vision, uh, I was a really really fast reader with great ability to comprehend. I could devour things, and I no longer can. It's very tedious to read, but uh, we need to be men and women who who read. Uh, so if I'm studying, uh, whether it's using commentaries or um, uh, or just reading my Bible, uh, there are things that enable me to do it well enough so that I can struggle through it. Uh, I've also told you that Paula reads to me, um, uh, and, and you know, I'm like anybody else, my mind can wander. Uh, when I'm listening to Paul or when I'm listening to an audio Bible. So it's really important, I think, that we take make the effort to, to read as best we can, whatever it is. Uh, that particular unit, Adelia, is called Enhanced Viewer by a company called Merlin, M-E-R-L-I-N. So I'm sure you could Google that, Enhanced Viewer by Merlin. And uh, somebody gave it to me as a gift uh, because I've got a bunch of generous and loving, caring people who know how much I love to read my Bible. So I hope that helps. And uh, Adelia, don't be discouraged. I I've, I haven't driven a car in 19 years. Paula drives me everywhere. 
Uh, I thought that would kill me, but um, you know what? With Jesus in the car, I'm fine. Uh, Paul has been so faithful to serve for so long. Um, you just you just kind of deal, and the Holy Spirit is right there. Uh, he has been very very faithful to um, bring out the word that I've hidden in my heart. So I hope that helps you a little bit. And you pray for me, Adelia, and I'll be praying for you. Thank you very, very much. Well, we're inside two minutes, so um, let me do one last question, and then we will we will go. Alex has a question. He says, Is it okay to use worship songs from churches with false doctrine if the song lyrics are solid? Can you talk about worship in general? Um, Alex, it is okay to use worship songs if the lyrics are solid. I am a lyric nut. If if uh, we, We've got a few songs, not many over the years, but a few that I heard the lyrics to as we were singing. Said, uh, we're not going to sing that song anymore. Um, um, just because a false church, um, Jesus culture, um, uh, Hillsong, uh, very popular worship these days, the churches are horrible. The doctrine behind the churches are horrible. But look at each song individually. Look at each song individually. Um, talking about worship in general, uh, it just needs to be honoring to the Lord. It can be uh, tailored to your specific taste. People love hymns. Um, other people love more contemporary music. I just, as long as it's doctrinally sound, as long as the people who are leading worship, uh, their hearts are right with God, and most importantly, as long as when you are entering worship, your heart is right with God. Uh, Worship can be a very powerful and glorious experience. So, Alex, I hope that helps. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Remember, tonight we have a men's, women's, youth, and junior high school Bible studies here at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can live stream at calvarysa.com. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.